This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. The comparisons are bleak. The predictions dark. The economy set to plunge into a decline of historic proportions. New COVID outbreaks in China have forced 65 million people back into lockdown. Authorities are reinforcing Beijing's zero COVID policy, and this requires partial or full. I've said before, Mr. Deputy Speaker, no return to boom and bust. We will not return to the old boom and bust. Hi folks, David Jameson here, editor of Conta.Scot, and joining me for another edition of Conta Capital is Gregor Clooney. Hi Gregor. Hi David, how you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, if you came here to hear us talk about the defenestration of the late Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, you've come to the wrong place, because we are here to talk about some of the de- deeper theoretical questions underpinning our contemporary moment in the history of capitalism. And today we're here to talk about energy specifically, because behind all this madness, behind the revolt of the markets against the British government, behind the uh, Bank of England's uh, war with the British government, behind all this, of course, is inflation. And it is inflation in the energy market, which is driving it everywhere else. So I'm interested to, to talk about this because I also don't know what's going on. I don't really understand. You hear so many claims made for inflation. What's driving it? Is it lockdown? Is it the war? Is it just capitalism? You hear quite a lot of that on the left. Is it just they're trying to make profits? And I think it would be good to get to the bottom of exactly what's driving inflation in the energy market, why our listeners' energy bills are going up, how that situation corresponds to the general condition of modern capitalism. So, Gregor, could you start us off just by talking about what is the modern capitalist system's relationship to energy? What does that look like? Thanks for that, David. And yeah, you're quite right. I mean, it's a little bit of a deceit to say that we know that what we're doing with this podcast and what it's for. Um, That's obviously still evolving, but I do think a key aspect of it is that we want to take a step back and we want to look at some of the structural, the fundamental structural relations which are underpinning the development of capitalist society. So we're probably a couple of steps back from the news cycle. And while certainly it's of crucial importance to working people in in Britain, what's happening with the Tory government and our recently deposed uh, Chancellor, I would invite listeners maybe to check in in a few months and we might have a a kind of working analysis of what's going on there. So in terms of energy, this is obviously a a major factor driving political instability, um, the skyrocketing uh, prices of energy which are affecting consumers, households, and, and also businesses up and down the country. And I suppose to zoom out to a maximum extent, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that we remain profoundly a detritus-based society. So the way in which we power our civilization is by digging up the congealed remnants of organic matter that lived 
hundreds of millions of years ago. And then we burn it to keep ourselves warm and to produce electricity. And this continues despite the fact that for decades there's been a, a settled scientific understanding that this process is causing catastrophic change in planetary cli climatic systems. And I suppose in terms of economics and, and politics, our reliance on these fossil fuels creates natural resource monopolies for those that own and control them. And perversely, as those fossil fuels are depleted, the monopoly owners of those resources are empowered through higher prices, thereby reaping super profits, and they use the social power that this wealth gives them to increase their grip on energy production, distribution and pricing. And also they, they play a key directing role in terms of the so-called green transition. So it's handing power to the very people who are imperiling um, the reproduction of, of civilization. I think that's really uh, interesting. I mean, as you say, obviously, our, our fossil fuels are, um, they are the fossilized remnants of, I take it mainly plant life from <laughs> a very, very, very long time ago. And it it always struck me as interesting that, um, I don't know if you saw Michael Moore's film from a couple of years ago, Planet of the Humans, where he talks about how uh, one of the green alternatives to fossil fuels is what's called biomass, which is literally just recently dead trees. Um, so one of the supposedly green methods of replacing fossil fuels is hacking down living trees, turning them into wood chips and burning them for energy. And all fossil fuels are, are that process delayed by millions and millions and millions of years. And yeah, that these the, the, the fact that this stuff has to be mined out the ground produces logical you know it, it produces sort of inevitable uh, monopolies talk a wee bit about that about that system so the oil and coal companies which have dominated the history of capitalism since industrialization and that's another thing i find fascinating about this of course is industrialization doesn't really make any sense until this process begins until you can turn coal into things like steam um that's what drives the huge explosion of economic activity, of commodity production, which has completely transformed human civilization in the last 200 years, and it's an incredibly short period of time. Um, so these, these monopolies have dominated capitalism from the start. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I, I think the biomass example is, is a good one, and it's also quite controversial in terms of its green credentials, because for the most part, despite being subsidized in the UK, the fuel is transported across the world from North America uh, to a great extent. So th there is part of the, the ongoing kind of measuring and accounting for green transition involves quite complex debates and, and measurements around the, the kind of full cycle of carbon expenditure and, and, and the process and so on. But in terms of yeah, fossil fuel monopoly ownership, it's a a key dynamic which structures interstate competition. And you, you can go about this in a reductive way and uh, try to draw straight lines between every armed conflict and natural resources. And obviously there are other factors and other mediations at play. But certainly the ongoing 
destabilization of political relations in the Middle East, for instance, oh, um, a huge part of that, the causal matrix there is ownership and control of, of oil reserves. And consequently, interstate competition also works back upon the, the economics of uh, fossil fuel uh, production. And, and distribution. So when you have interstate competition, which is absolutely endemic to the, the capitalist system of uh, territorially grounded competitive accumulation, this acts back upon supply of energy. It can create supply shocks, which result in dramatic increases in, in prices and again empower um, energy companies, these corporate powers which which control these natural monopolies and i suppose in a sense that has is what has been going on over the past year or so um we have seen a, a massive supply shock in in terms of oil and gas and this is of entirely artificial origin so it's not that oil rigs have blown up or that gas reserves have disappeared um, is that the West um, has deployed sanctions as an economic weapon against Russia, and this has colossally backfired. And I think it, you know, it's part of a much bigger discussion to understand the significance of sanctions as an economic weapon, um, which in principle opens up a front against entire civil, um, civilian populations. And this mechanism has been very destructive. So sanctions on Iraq in the decade prior to the 2003 invasion are estimated to have resulted in the deaths of anywhere between 100,000 and 500,000 children. So the question of sanctions and their role in geopolitical competition and warfare in general deserves full coverage. In this specific case... Sanctions have been a colossal failure. So far from beggaring the Russian state, Russian trade surpluses have skyrocketed. The gap between what they sell in the international market uh, through exports and what they import has uh, risen dramatically and almost entirely due to increased prices for, for oil and gas. And conversely, the Eurozone trade balance has plunged in the opposite direction. We get to a situation where Germany, the motor force of European economic growth, and for decades has been in trade surplus. It's it's been an exporting powerhouse and its exports have dwarfed its imports in value. They're now in a trade deficit because of the cost of, of imported energy. And in terms of the people of Europe, we're facing a fuel poverty crisis. And, you know, make no mistake about this, this will kill thousands of people. In the winter of 2019, for instance, 8,500 people in England and Wales alone died due to cold homes. So how many more thousands will die uh, this winter um, on account of, of the, the cost of fuel? So the sanctioned regime has, has backfired colossally. And there is some work to do to make the connections between that and, and how prices are actually determined at a national level. But we can go on to do that as well. Right. So th there are some people, including 
some people on the left who say, okay, in Central Europe, for example, your fuel prices have a very are very significantly impacted by the economic war. But here in the UK, we don't import as much fuel. So how can we be impacted in the same way by this by hits to the to the supply of particularly Russian fuel? Uh, how do we answer that? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question and on the face of it quite perplexing because the UK first and foremost has a general energy self-reliance. So about 50% of our electricity production is accounted for by wind power and by nuclear power. And then about 35% by, by gas. And the vast majority of that comes from the North Sea. So on the face of it, you say, why do international prices for gas have such a dramatic impact upon um, our, the, the prices that consumers are paying to heat their houses? And the answer to that is the insane structure of the wholesale energy market in the UK. And prior to 1990, we had a, a nationalised system and it was nationalised organisations which drove the development of the national grid in Britain and made huge infrastructural investments in capacity, pumped hydro storage and hydro generation and so on. And since privatisation, we've seen investment in the network uh, of you know, nothing like that type of scale. But we've also seen a massive increase in the rate of profit. So since privatisation, the difference between the cost of energy production per unit and the the retail price has trebled. So the rate of profit in in energy in general has skyrocketed and it's it has gone through the roof. And the really galling aspect of this is that precisely at the moment where we have this existential need to transform how we produce, store and distribute energy, there are huge rents being pulled out of the sector and going to private shareholders. So the big six energy distributors in Britain have paid out 23 billion in dividends in the last 10 years. So six times their tax bill. And imagine what that wealth could do to revolutionize energy production and distribution in in the UK. But the reason why they're allowed and enabled to extract this wealth from the system is because wholesale, the wholesale energy market in the UK is unregulated. So when we talk about price caps and we talk about Liz Truss's energy price guarantee, we're talking about retail prices. And that's actually quite tightly regulated. Uh, retail providers are only allowed to make 2% profit. The problem is that at the wholesale level, which accounts for a far higher proportion of your energy bills, prices are unregulated. And the structure of the structure which determines the wholesale energy price is absolutely insane. So this is not a, a market in any commonsensical understanding of the word. It's a pretend market, it's a simulated market. And it was introduced very much due to an ideological predilection whereby the sense is that 
the market and the private capital is is a better mechanism to reduce costs of energy than the state. But the way that it works is it's called a pay-as-you-clear model. And effectively, energy generators bid to supply electricity into the national grid. These bids are then accepted on a so-called merit basis, starting with those which have the lowest marginal costs. So that, that tends to be renewables because once you've set up your wind turbines or your solar farm or, or whatever, the cost of producing each unit of energy is very close to zero. There's, there's large investment costs at the start, but the marginal cost, so the cost per each new unit, is very close to zero. So they have their bids accepted first. And then the last bids come from high marginal cost producers, which are typically oil and gas. So they have to buy the fuel to burn and they have to pay tax on that fuel. But the price at which the market clears and the price which all of the generators are paid is the last price agreed upon. So the price that oil and gas sells into the market is the price that all generators in the market are paid. So this, and when you first come upon this, it's quite astonishing because this is not our conception of how any type of market works, that the price is determined by the least efficient supplier in the market. And this gives super profits to providers that are producing efficiently and with with low marginal costs. And you could think of, and this is very much how the system is celebrated. Well, you know, there's huge surpluses for the renewable producers, and therefore that's a good thing. It drives investment. But the problem is that there's structural barriers to removing oil and gas from the market, uh, from having their part of supply because in order for the base load currently provided by fossil fuels to be instead provided by renewables, you need to dramatically increase storage capacity in the network. And there's no incentive for private producers to do it. That's very much something that needs to be directed by the state. So yes, high prices with low costs for renewable providers will incentivize new wind farms but they won't incentivize pumped storage. They won't incentivize the long-term investments that are needed to, uh, to power a, a green energy transition. So this kind of technological blockage that we have continues to perpetuate our reliance on oil and gas. It produces, through this insane market mechanism, incredible super profits for electricity generators, and it impoverishes consumers and all of us who are just trying to heat our homes and not die of respiratory illnesses whilst failing to power any type of common sense green transition. And my assumption is that these energy monopolies are extremely politically influential. I mean, how strong can we say they are? Because there's often been, it has slightly on the conspiracy theory register that big oil was for for example behind the Iraq war or behind uh you know th- you know getting rid of Mossadegh in uh, in Iran 
right? I mean, you hear kind of conspiracy theories of this kind. It's a wee bit like the military-industrial complex was behind JFK and so on. But presumably the reason why there are such favourable, as you put it, um, fake markets for the energy companies is because they're political systems and within state management. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's perfectly explicable without entering into the territory of conspiracy theory. Wealth is a social power, which, depending upon the nature of the constitution and the political system at issue, is quite readily translatable into political power. You can see that quite directly in the US with the type of political funding system they have and the reliance of presidential candidates on super PACs. And there are very straight lines which are relatively transparent between you know, super PACs and oil and gas presidential candidates, and you don't get to become president in the US without that. It's uh, slightly more mediated um, in, in the UK, but again, you can see declared oil and gas contributions to the Tory party and to the Labour party, and that's all a matter of, of public record. Um, Liz Truss, of course, uh, used to work for one of the big six energy companies um, in, in the UK, and there's a revolving door, just as there is with uh, finance in the city of London between politics um, and, and these big monopolistic players. So as a kind of a social fact, those, those connections are there. But also it just goes back to the practicalities of control of this natural resource. If your product is required to produce electricity, which is a, a necessary input to all the other productive uh, forces and, and processes in the economy, and an absolute essential for the reproduction of life in, in, in the country, then the power you have quite inevitably on account of that is huge. And, and when we allow those resources and uh, connected with infrastructures that were built up at public expense to be controlled by corporate powers, then we create a monstrous uh, potential for corporations to control our, our economies and, and our public life with uh, mediations. Can I talk about just a, a Scottish instance of this, just to kind of bring it home to Scotland for a second, which is, I remember having to make this argument around the time of Scotland. So a few months ago, um, God, was it only a few months ago, the Scottish government leased Scotland's seabeds to a number of companies uh, for 10 years. And at the top of the pile in terms of claiming these contracts, were companies like Shell and British Petroleum. And when I said at the time, oh, the, and, and also I should say, the prices at which they were sold were very low. And I remember saying at the time, oh, you know, they've sold the seabeds to, 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 to big oil, who are in theory going to develop them for uh, renewable energies. Uh, and they may well, though it's also a point to make that once you buy once you once you control those seabeds, of course, it may be in your interest to retard the development of renewable energies, right? For the for the present period, it's, at least in theory that could happen. Um, and people said to me, "Oh no, they're not they've not been sold; they've been leased, and there are demands placed on the lease. 
So, for example, the, the government might have written into the, the leasing contracts, you must develop X amount of renewables by X period and so on. I remember saying at the time, don't be so naive, right? These companies, you can't throw BP out your country, right? Once you've leased them the seabeds, realistically, the contracts are negotiable, right? What do you think they're going to do? Beat BP's lawyers in a court? There's a, there's a naivety about the relationship between the state and these big oil companies. I'm not saying it's in that phrase of George Monbiot, state capture. The state has not been captured by big monopoly industries. That's not why it behaves in the way it does. But it's still the case that, as you say, if you control vital resources in a country, you have a very strong negotiating position at all points, not just when contracts are struck, but when they're observed, when they're returned to, when they're monitored, when the government tries to impose uh, regulations uh, or prohibitions or anything, you those companies are in a position of strength. And companies like British Petroleum, uh, the energy companies in general, who now control not only North Sea Oil, but also renewables development, must hold massive political power in Scotland. They must. Quite right. And it was particularly galling to observe the discourse around the Scotland tender process and the fact that these vital national resources were falling into the hands of corporate oil and gas was celebrated by a SNP Green Coalition government. So two parties that ostensibly are left of centre and one of which historically has had a a policy uh, platform based upon green transition. Now, of course, once you give over these resources to corporate power, you reduce the capability of politicians and the state to control those resources in the interests of the population. And you're almost left with just trying to nudge the market and trying to incentivize market actors and they only do what you want them to do if it's in their interest so and we can see that with the ownership structure of north sea oil and gas in this present context there is no way to force or coerce those companies without within the current setup of of uh, ownership and control and property relations to force those companies to sell Uh, oil and gas into the domestic market at below international market rates. So they are currently ripping us off for supply of oil and gas in the UK because they're charging an international market price. And the international market price has been uh, skyrocketed on account of the sanctions regime and and, and the fallout from that. If, If those were nationally owned resources, then the state could set the price at which those are sold into the domestic market and the British population would be insulated from that um, global turbulence. You will have exactly the same set of problems with the uh, privatisation of offshore wind. It becomes a question of corporate imperative as to how much wind they sell into the market and at what price and 
how they invest in that or disinvest in it. And we lose control over a key of using these inherited natural resources for the common good and for the flourishing of of the population in, in general. And I think we need to be, I think we need to have our eyes wide open. There is a point though I'd make about that. I mean, I think there are people on the left who almost argue that sort of that we should nationalise the energy companies um, to cut ourselves out the loop of this ridiculous international um, energy market, which I agree with. Up to the point where people are saying so that we can continue to prosecute economic war <laughs> against uh, against Russia and an act of sort of war communism or something, right? Uh, I think that's absurd. I th- there's another point to make about war and energy war and and economic war in general, which is that it drives inflation at so many points simultaneously that it's impossible to avoid its. Uh, its influence. It was a point very well made, actually, in an article by George Kerevin on Contour.Scot, where he says, you know, look at, for example, what the Vietnam War and spending on the Vietnam War did to the United States. It played a very important role in undermining the, the fundamentals of the American economy and actually providing the backdrop to the transition to what we've since called neoliberalism. You know, war does incredible things to economies in terms of inflation and hyper sort of heating and, and, and so on. And that's across a country waging that, you know, waging war in Vietnam that's the wealthiest country on earth, trying to subdue uh, a very impoverished peasant population. The perspective for the countries, the world's most powerful economies, all having a toe in this economic war is of a radically different kind. We have only seen the beginning of what this means for global economics. One indication of that was the recent decision by the OPEC oil producers, another very powerful lobby of, you know, this time states. And it needs to be remembered as well that Britain and the United States are very unusual for not nationalising their energy systems. When Vladimir Putin increased state control over oil in Russia, there was a kind of an, an international ripple of horror um, with people sort of saying, oh, it's he's gone against Yeltsin's heroic turn towards markets and so on. You know, he's going back to the old Soviet ways because he's nationalising oil and gas and so on. But most countries with substantial reserves of oil and gas have nationalised them because they're very potent strategic factors in an economy. Britain and the United States are unusual for having not done that. Um, but anyway, the OPEC cartel of, of oil producers, you know, kind of based around the Gulf states, restricted production to raise prices. And this was internationally accepted as a move to that, that would benefit Russia. Because, of course, it forces up oil prices. Russia's already benefiting from the spike in oil prices. So much so that for the first time that I can remember, the United States has suspended arms supplies to Saudi Arabia. So that, you know... <laughs> The geopolitics of the energy markets is a very live question at the moment. Yeah, I think you're you're right. There's a very unfortunate strain of ostensibly left-wing thought and action in Britain, which is kind of like socialism at home and imperialism abroad. 
And there are numerous kind of ideological mechanisms which hold this contradictory set of ideas together, one of which in recent years, of course, has been humanitarian intervention. So this is the set of discursive tools which tries to draw lines between the projection of imperialist, elite imperialist interests overseas and our general, um, both material and ideological, political um, inclinations in general of, of, of the population. And there's almost this sense of it's a, almost like a, an ideological concession whereby, okay, we might really struggle this winter and we might have to put on additional layers and we might not turn on our heating so much, but we're the good guys. And we're standing up to authoritarianism and Putin's Putin's uh, Russia and, and so on. And I think, of course, this collapses immediately in terms of the sanctions regime because it has not impoverished the Russian state very much. The opposite. Um, and the only people that it's benefited are oligarchs in Russia and in the West through the super profits reaped through the increasing commodity prices. So it's been entirely ineffective. And I think there are more generally questions to be asked around um, the effectiveness of sanctions as, as a weapon in these conflicts. The other thing I would say is that Britain's imperial um, ambitions and Britain's imperial activities are directly connected to the mismanagement of the domestic economy and the abandonment of any type of growth strategy for domestic industrial production. Britain is a rent seeker in the global economy and has reaped rewards through financial liberalization and privatization around the world. And on the back of Thatcher's ideology and the reforms which were brought in domestically it has exported this this idea as you know the way in which you achieve prosperity and and progress and reap reward through financial rents through the interest charged on debt through structural adjustment through the acquisition of national resources in countries around the world and it's impossible to do that whilst maintaining a, a protectionist system at home with nationalised infrastructure, with national political control over the commanding heights of the economy, um, and so on. These are, uh, these are contradictions. But we have effectively sacrificed good jobs, stable jobs, rising incomes um, in this country in order for the British elite to pursue these um, international strategies of exploitation and and extraction. So I, I do think that work needs to be done to decouple, yeah, just that strange assortment of ideas that finds itself together in the type of British state, imperial-oriented thought patterns of aspects of, of the British left. And also that the the monetary system that we have is shaped by the demands of that rentier economy that you describe. So the monetary policy, which is currently being shaken at the Bank of England, but is, you know, the BOE seems to be on top. 
the order that we have around interest rates and inflation and so forth is specifically designed for the export of financial services and financial instruments and uh, the import of many goods that would once have been produced here so that it's structurally it's in the um, it's in the structure of British capitalism that uh, you know that we have a, a permanently declining manufacturing sector and so on that these things as you say they're all connected um in in the structure of, of British capitalism yeah and, uh, sorry just to interject a little on that question but if you want to ask why is it that our domestic infrastructure and the shape of our domestic economy is quite so pathological in the UK it's because financial capital is in charge of the historical block it's dominant and it shapes uh, policy formation and, and implementation so if you think about um, the stark contrast with the the traditional export oriented Keynesian economy so in the context where you are competing in international commodities markets, you need your exports to be competitive. There is a structural imperative to hold down internal costs. So things like the rent that workers have to pay for their house, the rent that businesses need to pay for their commercial premises, the money that they have to pay to utilities companies for their energy and for their other for their raw materials. All those are directly reflected in export prices. So the state adopts a strategy, a subventionary strategy, where it effectively subsidizes all of these inputs in order for state products, um, manufacturing products to be competitive in the international market and to, to earn revenues there. What happened with post-Thatcher where the industrial strategy was not only... Uh, deprioritized but completely dismantled is that instead those the prices of those inputs became mechanisms for rent seeking so they became the lever through which you can extract wealth from productive areas of the economy so you can intermediate la labor revenue you can effectively appropriate steel wages you can also appropriate profits from productive sectors of the economy. But this has a kind of a path dependency to it. It's a spiral. So the more those internal costs increase, the less competitive your exports. And if that's happening at the same time as the, the pound is increasing in value, and this happened at crucial conjunctural moments throughout the neoliberal period as you had this massive increase in internal costs and an increase in the value of the pound, the competitiveness of the British economy collapsed. And that is the fundamental factor which underpins the political instability and the economic crisis which the UK now faces. It's our costs relative to competitors are um, are extremely high, and that's because of this prioritization through monetary and fiscal policy and state developmental policy to pursue financial rents at home and abroad rather than domestic economic development. So we hear a lot of demands at the moment for the nationalization of energy, but what would it actually look like what would the infrastructure look like? What would the institutions look like of a much more rationalised energy system? Yeah, so I think 
we need to make very specific demands and some of those are immediate and conjunctural and it's entirely within first of all the the power of the british state to set wholesale prices and to determine quite directly how much energy will be traded for in the british market um, and what level of profit energy generators are allowed to make and they already do that at the retail level very successfully they could also do that at the wholesale level and you could prevent impoverishment and death of among the british civilian population simply by restraining uh, the profits of uh, giant energy corporations through price controls and that would be a very rational situational intervention I think in the longer run, whilst energy companies engaging in renewable energy production are being incentivized to increase that production since they are achieving the single national market price for their uh, energy per unit, despite having much lower cost of production than, say, oil and gas, the incentive structure for development of the network isn't there. And there's, from my, my point of view, there's no way that private companies are capable of achieving the type of transformation and technology and infrastructure that we need to have a sustainable and um, secure energy future in the UK. And I think about, you know, any um, anyone that grew up in the West Highlands visited Kruken Power Station um, on on a school trip, this is very much a standard part of of elementary education. But you know that this is a, a a pumped hydro storage plant. So when you have excess capacity, which is most of the time um, in the energy market, you know outside of of peak hours, you pump water up into an elevated reservoir high in the hills, and then when there's system stress, when there's demand you um, release the water through pipes to turn generators and create electricity. And this is the the key technological barrier to renewables making a ginormous leap in terms of our um, el- electricity capacity or electricity um, demand is its storage. Because you need to use electricity as it's being generated if you don't, it's, it's very dangerous and there's no way to get it back once you've lost it. So the key problem is that there's a massive hole in energy storage. And in Scotland, it would make a huge amount of sense to invest in more pumped hydro. But I think about the fact that the, the last time this happened at a national structural level was post-war. Um, and I've spent a lot of time, you know, around, I'm a bit of a, a geek for kind of national infrastructure. I've spent a lot of time around the Glen Ken's hydropower scheme and up at Erichty Dam in, in Perthshire, a uh, beautiful uh, diamond-headed buttress dam for those uh, dam geeks out there. But um, I think about the fact that, that these investments, these massive infrastructure projects were undertaken in the 1950s and, and 1960s, when Europe was trashed by war, uh, when the state debt was off the charts, historic 
historic house. And these were done by, uh, these were undertaken by publicly owned uh, state-controlled enterprises. And these laid, these processes laid the foundations for a national energy grid, which has subsequently been, you know, obviously established at, at public cost and which has formed the basis for private appropriation since since the privatization of the energy market in, in the 1990s. And we've seen nothing like the scale of infrastructural investment that, that we had in, in the post-war context. Instead, the surpluses which are generated by the system at the cost of consumers like you and I have gone directly into the pockets of shareholders and from there into all of the investment paths that we know so much about, unfortunately, financial derivatives markets, offshore tax havens, luxury expenditure, and so on. Um, We're both paying extremely high bills despite a national self-reliance, but the surpluses generated by that system are not being plowed into energy transition in anything like the scale that's required to avert um, environmental catastrophe. And not to let subsequent governments off the hook, but that does suggest something, doesn't it, about deeper structural changes in British capitalism and a certain loss of dynamism as well. Absolutely. And I think when you think about it in terms of if you're going to have uh, an economic system where investment is driven by private imperative and by profit-seeking, then that profit is going to follow the the most profitable channels, um, whatever the social value of that investment. And once you've created a national system which incentivizes financial investment, which generates huge rents, huge returns for investment in property and investment in speculative financial instruments, it's then very hard to get corporations to do anything socially meaningful because the type of investments required for this type of long-term structural development of energy production and distribution is not attractive by comparison to the to the quick buck. So again, it's, it's this fundamental question of, of how we organize our society, how we organize economic development. And Britain is a financial private investment driven economy and a consumption driven economy rather than being driven by state investment and i mean the results of that are all around us i mean it's you know we have by a margin the worst transport infrastructure in the developed world and we have a um, a creaking energy system which is systematically underinvested in okay uh that's been really interesting and uh, yeah, I look forward to going further down this uh, this path of examining the fundamentals of the of the, of the modern capitalist system. As you say, perhaps in a couple of months' time, we'll be able to uh, to bring you an explanation for the the current car crash that is uh, the British economy and its uh, political superstructure. Um, but for now. Uh, thanks very much for listening and thanks very much Gregor for your thoughts Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter 
at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscott.com.